Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. If you are of a particular age and grew up in a certain flavor of American Protestantism, likely those words stirred some mystic chords of memory. A popular children's Sunday school song. And if you missed out on learning that song when you were a kid, my mom and dad didn't let me watch Happy Days. So it's probably a wash. Why did we really lose? But kids love the story of Zacchaeus. I'm, I'm told that that song isn't very popular these days. It's not as cool as some others. But, but kids love the story of Zacchaeus, whatever song gets sung about him. Little kids identify with being small and lost in the crowd, with not being able to see over a crowd, having to be picked up by an adult to get up high enough to see. And the thought of an adult being short and unable to see strikes them as funny. And what does Zacchaeus do to solve his problems? He does what at least 85% of kids love to do. He climbs a tree. And he meets Jesus. He has to climb a tree and then he gets to meet Jesus. What a great story. Well, it's a well-known and well-loved Bible story. I grew up in a religious tradition that valued Bible stories. And I appreciate a lot about that tradition. But... It's a tradition that valued Bible stories for the moral lessons they taught, for the examples the characters set for us to either follow or avoid. I've mentioned before, I grew up thinking the Bible was a book about me. It was a book about me and how I'm supposed to behave. And I got some knowing looks last time, but, but here's what I mean. Here's a good example of what I'm saying we shouldn't be doing. It's from a great biblical scholar a man named Herbert Lockyer. We have two of his very good reference books in the, in the library over here. I'm not at all criticizing the man personally, but his commentary on this passage is the point of the story, you must climb higher than yourself to see Jesus. You must climb higher than yourself to see Jesus. That's the point of the story according to Herbert Lockyer. Now I'll tell you, you could take that and preach it, but you wouldn't be preaching the gospel. The gospel is you can't climb higher than yourself. And that's why Jesus comes to you. And in fact, that's the point of the Zacchaeus story. The story isn't about me and what I need to do to meet Jesus. The story is about Jesus who goes out of his way to meet me. The story of Zacchaeus is not a story about me and what I need to do to see Jesus. And it's not a story about you and what you need to do to see Jesus. It's not a story about you and me. Again, it's a story about Jesus. It's a story about who Jesus is and the new identity he offers. That he offers to me and you after he's found me. It's not me climbing a tree to find Jesus. It's about Jesus finding me. In other words, it's just like all the Bible stories. From Genesis to Revelation, they point us to Jesus. Well, let's take a look at this story from the gospel this morning. A good set of questions to ask when reading the Bible is why am I being told this and why am I being told this now? Why am I being told this and why am I being told this now? 
That's another way of putting my tired old advice, location, location, location. And if you're tired of hearing that, try this. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, stick around, I'll say it some other sermon. Why am I being told this story? And why is this story right here in the scripture and not somewhere else in the scripture? Why is it doing, what's it doing here? Out of all the stories Luke had access to, he picks only a few. So why did he pick this one? And then as he arranged the story in a connected narrative, he says in the first verse of Luke 1, why did he connect that story to this narrative right here? Now the first thought might be that it seems to be connected to the story of the tax collector in Luke 18. You may have noticed we had a sermon last week. I preached that sermon on a tax collector. I even mentioned Zacchaeus in the sermon. I hadn't even looked on the preaching schedule to see who was scheduled to preach today. And I certainly hadn't looked at the lectionary. But here I open up the lectionary and bang, we got Zacchaeus again. But it doesn't seem to be connected to that story. Because in between there are several other stories. One story Jesus calls the children to come to him. He foretells his death for the third time. And he meets a a rich young ruler. And I think that last story is the connection in the narrative. Why this story and why is the story here? Well, just a few verses earlier, Jesus had met a rich young man who would not give up his wealth in order to follow Jesus. And as the young man walks away, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Okay, Jesus told a joke there and nobody's laughing. He says it's easier to get a camel to go through the eye of a needle and the people around him, I'm sure, started laughing. Because they were used to needles and they were used to camels. How would you get a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Grab hold of his head and try to shove it through the eye of the needle? Or go to the back end and take one hair of the tail and stick it through the needle and then pull really hard? How would you do it? It's crazy. You can't do that. But Jesus says what's impossible with man is possible with God. And so now Jesus is going to demonstrate that with God all things are possible. And turns out, even a rich man can enter the kingdom of God. Like a camel going through the eye of a needle, Zacchaeus finds that he's the punchline of the joke. As incredible as a camel going through the eye of a needle, Zacchaeus can find himself swept by God's love into the kingdom. And he can find a new identity for himself in Jesus. So let's look closely at our gospel reading. There's the story itself, which is familiar to most of us. And then there are three things to focus on. First, what Zacchaeus says. Second, what Jesus does not say. And third, what Jesus does say. And if we understand these three things, what Zacchaeus says, what Jesus doesn't say, and what Jesus does say, then we'll understand why Luke was compelled to tell us this story. And of course, we'll learn more about Jesus. The story takes place in Jericho. Jericho is a six-hour walk from Jerusalem. It's about 15 miles away. It sits to the southwest of Jerusalem. It was a major trade center for dealings southwest of where Israel was. So what essentially we mean, the Arabs. It's a major trade route for the Arabs who are also trading with the Chinese and the Indians. And the major trade center. So a lot of money flows through Jericho. 
So it's a good place to have a tax collector. In fact, the chief tax collector, because Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, um, he's the chief tax collector in that region. Tax collectors, we talked about them last week, but just to recap, are rarely popular figures. But in first century Roman Palestine, they're absolutely hated and despised. The Jewish people were under Roman occupation. Their taxes went to fund their cruel occupiers. So simply because Zacchaeus was a tax collector, he was working with the enemy. And that alone would turn his fellow citizens against him. But there is more, and again, recapping from last week. In the Roman provinces, taxes were collected by the tax collectors. Whatever Rome demanded would be gathered. And tax collectors were given the job of collecting them, but tax collectors were not paid a salary. Instead, their job was to collect whatever Rome commanded and then use the military might of Rome to take even more for themselves. Not only do they do the work for the enemy, they use the enemy's power to steal money to pay themselves. The tax collector shows up at your house and says, you owe $10 in taxes. And you say, wait a second, my bill says $7 in taxes. And the tax collector says, yeah, well, me and my two Roman soldier buddies here say your tax bill's $10. Be ashamed to have something happen to this nice house. But Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. The lower tax collectors would have to collect what was due to Rome, collect whatever they could skim off the top for themselves, and in addition, collect enough to successfully bribe Zacchaeus to keep the job for the next year. It's like a mandatory pyramid scheme. The money comes up and trickles up and, until it reaches the top. Zacchaeus is a man with few, if any, friends. The honorable Romans would despise him as a traitor to his own people. His employees, the other tax collectors, would envy his control of them and loathe the fact that they had to share their income with him and the townspeople of Jericho grumble at him. As Zacchaeus becomes wealthier, the envy and hatred grows. As his house becomes fancier, his wife and children dress more nicely, everyone in town knows where that money has come from, out of their pockets. Zacchaeus isn't quite that cute little guy who climbs a tree, really. Zacchaeus is despised and hated by almost everyone he knows. But Jesus comes looking for him by name. And our story here starts with curiosity. Zacchaeus wants to hear and see Jesus. But he can't see over the crowd and is too small to muscle his way to the front of the line. So he runs on ahead, finds a tree, and climbs up to get a better look. It all started with curiosity. In and of itself, curiosity is not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. But if you ever find yourself curious about Jesus, that's a God-given impulse and desire for knowledge that you should act on. Your curiosity about Jesus is a sign of God's calling you to himself. Well, Zacchaeus acts on his curiosity. Jesus makes his way past Zacchaeus' perch, and the strangest thing happens. Jesus stops, looks up, calls Zacchaeus by name. He says, hurry, come down. Promise to eat at your house today. And Zacchaeus hurries down and receives Jesus joyfully. What a vivid picture of faith in action. Jesus called him, and he hurried down. He received him joyfully. There was no hesitation. There was only joy. And it happens quickly in the story, but the scene moves inside a house. 
We're told that Zacchaeus receives Jesus. That's technical language. It means he's welcomed into his home. The people begin grumbling that um, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who was sinners. We're supposed to picture a scene change. Jesus receives Jesus into his home. He has his servants wash feet and bring forward, forward food. The people complain. And the action moves to Zacchaeus' dining room. I mean, at first the story seems like Zacchaeus is saying all this from the tree. That's how I always pictured it when I was a kid. But the scene moves inside. And we aren't told the inner thoughts of Zacchaeus as he took Jesus and his disciples into his house, began dinner. We don't know what Jesus said as they ate dinner. We don't know what questions Zacchaeus might have asked of the Lord. But what is evident in what Zacchaeus says next is that his joyful reception of Jesus was more than just an offer of polite hospitality. He'd received Jesus into more than his home. He'd received him into his life. He believed in him. He trusted in him. An inward change, a change of heart had occurred in Zacchaeus, and he would never be the same. In the midst of the meal, whatever Jesus had been saying to Zacchaeus resonates with him. Reclining, resting around the table, Jesus says something that Zacchaeus responds to. And Zacchaeus stands up. And everyone turns to him and he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus calls Jesus Lord. When he does that, when anyone does that in the New Testament, that's not being polite. Because Jesus has no lordship in any kind of human political economic sense. He's not a lordly figure at all. He's a carpenter from Galilee. But Zacchaeus calls him Lord. Now two things here are significant. As an employee of the Roman government, Zacchaeus would have had to acknowledge that Caesar was his lord. Caesar could tolerate no one else being lord but himself. The great cry, Caesar is lord, is replaced by the Christians. Jesus is lord. That great cry comes out of a political world in which to say Jesus is lord is to emphatically say that Caesar is not. We have a shifting in allegiance. The man that Caesar commanded will now do what Jesus commands. And the first thing he does that Jesus commands is that he repents. And as is common in Luke's gospel, the sign of his repentance is a change in his attitude towards money. I'm not saying that's the only sign of repentance one can have, or even the most important. For some reason, that resonates with Luke. Because when Luke has people repent, it's almost always connected to money. Perhaps Luke is telling us about his own repentance story there. Well, Zacchaeus exhibits that changed attitude towards money. What was once a means to provide a very comfortable life for himself becomes a means to assist the poor. What was the fruit of his thievery, he returns fourfold. And being a good Jew, Zacchaeus knows what he must do. He must make restitution. The law demands it. And he knows the law, and he doesn't do any quibbling. Under the law of Moses, there are various levels of theft and various levels of retribution. Someone guilty of spending, stealing, sorry, stealing money, for example, must return it with one-fifth in addition. In other words, a 20% penalty. The levels go up from there. At the top is stolen livestock. And depending on the type of livestock, the retribution is either fourfold or fivefold either 400% or 
And Zacchaeus assigns him the stiffer penalty. He says, let's not quibble over whether that's worth money at 20% or livestock at 40%. We'll just call it 40%. I'll take the stiffer penalty. I'll pay back whatever I owe fourfold. And then Jesus surprisingly doesn't say what the script calls for. It's surprising because Jesus certainly knows the script. In fact, he has followed the script in a reading just a few Sundays ago. Everyone at the table, from Zacchaeus to the lowliest servant, knows what Jesus is supposed to say. Because any other rabbi would have said this. Wonderful, you have repented. Go and make restitution. And after you've made restitution, go to Jerusalem. Purchase a ram from the animal tenders there. Take it to the temple. Present it to the priest as a sin offering to atone for what you've done. And after that animal has been sacrificed, then you will be restored to fellowship with God. But not Rabbi Jesus. Rabbi Jesus goes off the script. And it was a script he certainly knew well and had followed before. Just a few weeks ago, we read in Luke that Jesus healed some lepers. But he tells them to follow the law, to go to the priest and be examined according to Moses' law. But this time, Jesus steps between Zacchaeus and the law. Zacchaeus is supposed to to be told to go to the temple and make the proper sacrifices, and only then can he enter into restored fellowship with God. But instead, Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. And he adds, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And now we get to the hero of the story. The story, as I've said, is not about you or me. The story really isn't even about Zacchaeus. It's possible for a person to wrongly conclude that Zacchaeus is the hero of his story, that it's his action, his running, his climbing, his repenting, and his giving that saves us, saves him. But Zacchaeus would not want us to make that mistake. He would want us to know that Zacchaeus did not because he could not save Zacchaeus. Jesus saved Zacchaeus. And if we read this story rightly, It is Jesus' action, Jesus' love, Jesus' obedience, and Jesus' initiative that takes center stage. Jesus didn't stumble across Zacchaeus. He came looking for him. While Zacchaeus was straining to catch a glimpse of Jesus, the Savior already planned to eat at his home. Notice verse 5, when Jesus reached the place, he looked up. It doesn't say Jesus saw Zacchaeus and stopped on the spot. It wasn't Zacchaeus' tree climbing that caught his attention. Zacchaeus could have been up a tree or have stayed in the back of the crowd and Jesus still would have found him. And it wasn't even Zacchaeus who called out to Jesus. Jesus stopped when he didn't have to. He called Zacchaeus by name. He invited himself over for dinner. It wasn't Zacchaeus' action of giving away his money that saved him. Even simply making restitution for what he had obtained wrongly would not have restored him to fellowship with God. In verse 9, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus was speaking of himself. Today salvation has come to this house. That's because Jesus is salvation. It's because he came to Zacchaeus that Zacchaeus was saved and then can turn from his life of sin. Everybody in Jericho had written Zacchaeus off. He was outside of God's grace as far as they were concerned. They grumbled that he was a sinner. But Jesus thought otherwise. Zacchaeus and every other sinner is not outside the scope of God's grace and forgiveness. They're merely lost. And Jesus reveals the heart of God when he announces his mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission. 
That's his purpose, to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came, and that's why he died, and that's why he rose again. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world or to destroy the world. He came to search for and save lost people. And Jesus' love extends to every person, even the most unlikely, even those like Zacchaeus who are despised and hated. And thank God, even people like you and me. In Jesus' name, amen.